Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the knowledge, information, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have in our virtual studios Bryce Kuntz, who is an information security researcher out in Salt Lake City. He comes highly recommended to me, and I think you're going to enjoy our talk about red teaming and all kinds of ways that the Pen test is not just going to give you the compliance you want, but you really have to aim for something a little bit more realistic, or you're going to potentially, you know, you might get your compliance check, but you're not going to go ahead and effectively defend your organization. As always, listen to us on our your favorite podcast, subscribe to us if you can, and follow us on LinkedIn. So, Bryce, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you come highly recommended to me. I mean, you do all kinds of cool exploits and things like that. You, you've worked at all kinds of agencies and things like that. Picked up a master's. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your background so everybody kind of knows where you're coming from. Yeah, so really into computers and, you know, just the computer security side of things since I was young. Obtained a master's degree in, in Idaho and uh, started working for Homeland Security. So, so at the time, I was more on the defensive side at, at Homeland. I was working incident response and focus operations, which was kind of their hunt team. So a lot of trying to track down nation states and secure Homeland's networks. So, so that, was, that was a lot of fun. You know, that was early on before hunt was really even a thing, right? And subsequently ended up working in, in the intelligence community. Really, my passion is more the offensive side of the house. So worked there for a number of years, trying to yeah, expand those red teaming capabilities. And then uh, worked at Adobe and built out a red team for them, for specifically for their digital experience business unit. And that side of Adobe highly leverages cloud services such as those in AWS, Azure, and GCP. So I really started to refine the techniques required to get initial access into cloud environments. And then once you get initial access into a cloud environment, how do you expand access? Subsequently, started stage two security. We really have a team that just focuses on the offensive pen testing as a service or red team as a service. And created a best-selling class that's at Black How that typically sells out each year. That's all about how, you know, you get into cloud environments and expand access. So trying to share that knowledge with people as we go. So yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell as far as, you know, my past. That's, that's pretty cool. So you've had a chance to work both the defense and the offense side. Started out a little bit, as you say, in the hunt teams, which really didn't exist. You kind of pioneered that at DHS, which is kind of an interesting opportunity because as we're finding either in large organizations or even in the federal sector, they may not have the same robust set of activities in their IT security world as we might expect for organizations to have. I mean, some people have effective red teams and other times all you can do is contract out. And then once or twice a year, you, you get a pen test and then you say, okay, I guess that's as good as it's going to get. But speaking as as good as it's going to get, how how realistic is your typical pen test? So I'm going to, of course, exclude the ones that I'm going to be able to get from stage two because they're going to be exceptional. But in general, if I need a compliance check, I mean, just call up either like one of the big four and a half. I mean, that's what I call them because someone's either going to merge or out of business or one of the well-known firms. And you get somebody comes in there and they, they sit back and they press a button and they 
you know, sit in their bunny slippers while a bone scan runs and they give you a printout and they go, there you go, pay us. Uh, that's not very realistic. Uh, but th- let's talk a little bit about that, why it's unrealistic and why pursuing this for compliance sake really isn't adding any value. Yeah. So customer requirements vary widely. You know, you get customers that they really want to, they want to do the right thing, but maybe they just don't have budgets that are appropriate for, for getting those engagements done. And and you have other customers that really just want to get stuff checked off, like done. So there's many ways that customers sell themselves short in, in my opinion. So namely the scoping for the engagement. So a lot of clients, they, they have client requests or for, to see a pen test report. So they narrowly scope the engagements to, you know, for example, maybe just like a staging version of their web application. And that that's the entire scope of the engagement. Right. And, you know, they, they just want it turned around as, as quick as possible. You know, which is, which is fine. Uh, that does meet some of the compliance requirements. So for example, like you could do an OWASP type, a test that's compliant with OWASP standards. Um, and if you provided access to source code, you know, you could even get to like a level two on that. But the, re- the reality is, I mean, that, that's really one very narrow access vector into your company, right? If a real attacker was like, I want to breach your company, you know, they might spend maybe a, a week looking at your web app, maybe max, you know, it's much more highly likely that they are going to build capabilities that they can reuse across multiple organizations. And then when they want access to your specific organization, they're going to unload those capabilities against you. And, you know, we see this time and time again with the ransomware reports, right, with the companies being breached, as well as with the nation states, right? They're trying to build capabilities that scale, right? And, you know, your specific web app, I highly encourage you to get that tested, but that that's just the beginning of really where you want to be. It's definitely, it's a different, it's a different perspective, right? So, and I think there's just, I think there's also like a time factor that, that a lot of clients don't, don't realize. Like when you get a, a pen test, right, you, you specifically pay for the company to look at it and they, they usually back that into some type of hour formula like hey we're going to spend 40 hours on this project or whatever but you know as as an attacker you you almost look at it from the reverse perspective uh like let's say you're a ransomware group a criminal group that's out there you might just scan up somebody's infrastructure that you want access to like maybe a pipeline or a power company or something like that you might record that data into a centralized relocation and then you might just monitor for new, you know, one days or O days to drop. And when a new vulnerability drops, you just try and match that up against your targets and you see if you get any matches. And if so, that's the target you're working today, right? So there's really these, you know, they take more a continuous mindset where they're looking at you holistically. And that's not even, you know, that's just the server side angle where they're looking at your stuff from the internet, right? You know, obviously... If you're talking reusable capabilities that you want to use against many organizations, a lot of clients are, are really going to, or a lot of attackers are really going to focus more on that client side objective, right? Is there a way that they can get access to, you know, a workstation or a laptop inside your enterprise that's at least somewhat trusted so you can just start to pivot closer to their targets? 
It's an interesting idea. So the thought is that a lot of organizations will say, well, hey, I'm a target and somebody is going to have to go ahead and either find a vuln or create some sort of an O-Day or whatever. But we are suggesting it might be an opportunistic for organizations that have a large number of targets to say, okay, we've scoped out this range of potential victims and lo and behold, here comes along a vulnerability. You go, hey, that's guy number seven over there. One through six don't have it. So let's attack seven this week. And, and so sometimes what we find them is although there's opportunistic types of attacks, yeah, it's just a drive-by and maybe spray and pray and, and sometimes they get in, but really this is sort of a combination of opportunism and some sort of a pre-selection in the target base. And as you said, a pen tester is going to come in there running a clock and the client is going to say, well, hey, I'm not going to pay past 40 hours, but you don't see nation state attackers punching a union clock that says, hey, 40 hours, I'm done, let's give up. So how do we make it more realistic then when we understand that in some cases, attackers have a list and they're checking it twice and they're going to make sure that whatever comes along at some point, whether it's today, next week, next month, or six months from now, there's somebody on shift who's going to say, hey, I can now go after this thing. How do we convince decision makers at organizations that the 40 hours a year is not at all sufficient to provide a level of assurance that you've got an effective defense? Luckily or unluckily, depending on your perspective here, you know, the, the ransomware criminal groups are adding a real cost to not having adequate cybersecurity defenses, right? So, and this is really something where you can get ahead of the problem or you can delay and the consequences will be much worse afterwards. But, you know, either way, you know, there, there's people out there that want access to your companies and, and primarily because, you know, they've figured out a way to monetize this. From an organization standpoint, you need, we need to move strategically from what's required for compliance to what's required to defeat these criminal groups. And just because you haven't been a victim of the criminal group yet, that, that doesn't mean that this, this won't ramp up more in the future. As long as companies keep paying and there's a way to monetize it, I see no reason why more groups won't emerge here. And realistically, technologies are, are getting better, but they're still more on the bleeding edge side of the house, right? So, so you do see a few companies, they're coming out with continuous automated red teaming or cart functionalities, right? And that's one thing we're doing at stage two security. But we're trying to, we're taking a unique, unique approach to cart. And, and let, me, let me kind of explain what, what cart is. So basically, anytime we can take something that one of our SMEs does in a red teaming scenario, and then package that up into some code with uh, logic and flows, and then reuse it, we're, we're trying to do that inside of our ecosystem. And it's basically like a microservice ecosystem. And, and, and the, the purpose there really is to be a, fo a force multiplier, right? So we're trying to build an exoskeleton suit just because, you know, there, there's not that many experts at red teaming or, or offensive services in general. And there's a lot more clients that need to be serviced. So 
So in, in the same way that defensive teams right now have way too many, like mo- most defensive teams have way too many alerts or notables, right, to triage in a day. So how, how are they really handling that? They're, they're kind of having a tiering system, right, where they kind of, you know, maybe they're able to fully automate away the tier one work through, you know, a SOAR platform. But, uh, you know, they got tier two analysts that are kind of doing more triage and then tier three analysts that are kind of handling the escalation points. So so I think an, an approach to handling this is to kind of do the same, right? It's to try to take all the tier one pen testing functionality and automate it away. And, that, and that's what our CART platform tries to do. And then tier two is really for triage. So, you know, when we see something matches up like, hey, there's this new volume that dropped and these tar- these clients are affected. And then they can task the tier three guys and be like, hey, man, I need you guys to like flesh out this O-Day or this one day and get us back or working POC. And so that way you can kind of scale out the operations. But with that being said, I mean, that may sound like a totally innovative and new idea and bleeding edge. But if, if you go read the reports that NSA has released publicly, right? you'll see reports of Russian APT sets that have, that have already been doing this for years, right? They have a Kubernetes or a microservice-based cluster, and they, they are using it to brute force or gain access into organizations. So while, yeah, it's innovative that now red teaming companies are starting to do it, I mean, it's, it's not like it isn't already being done, right? And it's already being done by people that, you know, odds of you catching are, are a lot lower, right? Than just, you know, some ransomware group, right? So I think this is just kind of the natural evolution. And I think eventually the compliance frameworks are going to see the technology and say like, yeah, this is the only way to actually be secure. And they're going to write it into the policies, right? But we're not there yet. And in, in the interim time, what you got to ask yourself is, do I want to run the risk of being hit with some ransomware scenario? Or do I want to be more proactive, right? And try to try to get ahead of the ball. And, you know, I, I can't answer that question for every different organization, right? Everyone's got to have their own risk determination and, and all that. But they, you know, and it depends on, you know, where your business is and things like that. But, you know, if you, if you have a business and you're generating significant amounts of profit, right? But you're, you're just doing the bare minimum from a compliance testing standpoint. You know, from my perspective, that, that doesn't bode well. Right. That seems like a, a rich target for a ransomware scenario. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like, uh, do you feel lucky is not really a good question. <laughs> Mr. Archer board meeting. Hey, we can save a lot of money uh, this year on our security budget if we just like, like, hope it works out. Now, when, when you guys get in, you've been doing this for a while, so you're, you're quite expert at it. But for folks who are not on a red team and they kind of say, well, what kind of magic do you guys do? I mean, there's probably some core maneuvers at the end of the day. You say, these are kind of the eigenvalues of what we do, the core stuff that you combine them all and you get the results. What what would you say those basic moves are that like Legos that you end up building into a bigger strategy? So we, you know, we have our platform and it hits up everything that's on the internet. And then we kind of have leads that we kind of follow up on. And then, and then we'll dig into like open source products. Like we found O'Days and like open source products that do, password management and things like that, but, uh, uh, which will work with the providers to give them a patch and all that, you know, you can harden your internet facing perimeter pretty well. You could put a lot of those systems, a lot of the attack service behind VPNs or, or implement more like zero trusty type solution, which 
would help it reduce your tax service. So, so you know, a lot of times, if if we can't find a way in from the internet, then we're 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 coming after the client side at, at that point. And what one thing that I just want to say before I flip to the client side is is you know we we're we're all about that that cloud security life, right? So so a lot of times we'll find bugs in web applications uh, like. SSRF bugs, right? And sometimes the companies already know about them, right? But they had no idea, you know, that you could use the SSRF bug to hit the metadata service in the cloud provider, pull back a token, and then start authing to authenticating to the control planes as if you were had the same permissions that that server has inside the cloud environment. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be like a server, like serverless functions, like Lambda functions also have access to tokens or credentials to opt to the services. And so one thing that really has been a lot of clients is overly permissive policies being attached to resources in clouds, right? So they, uh, you know, will we'll leverage kind of trivial bugs like LFIs or SSRFs to grab the tokens. Then once we grab the tokens, we'll realize, hey man, this thing can like read everything in their storage accounts. Then we'll just start trolling through the storage accounts for additional credentials that are maybe are in config files or source code or things like that. Just like, you know, in your typical old school pen testing, you'd get on the internal network that you go over to the file share and then you would put the intern on your pen test team on browsing all the files on the file share. Right. So you kind of do the same thing, but in the, in the cloud native perspective where you're authenticating to all these APIs and I do, you know, want to you know, encourage clients to come up with some way to like monitor their logs and their environments. Cause you know, obviously like stealing of tokens from resources that are deployed in your cloud environments and then reusing those tokens. In a lot of those scenarios, you should be able to detect that from a detection standpoint. Now there are some more advanced techniques to defeat those detections, but uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to help anybody with that. Right? I don't blame you. So, so if we if we go with kind of the the stuff that a lot of people heard about, like you know doing phishing or stealing tokens or macros or passing the hash or AD attacks or mimicats or stuff like that, a lot of those things are going to work really well on servers or endpoints. What's different about the cloud? And do you have to throw away your whole toolbox, or can you leverage some of that toolbox? Or you just try to pop a system that already has all the creds to the cloud and then just pivot from there. What's, how, do you, how do you put all that together in the cloud environment? Yeah, I mean, it's really an evolution and it's really exciting from my standpoint because I, this sounds a little weird, but you know, like popping another Windows domain, that's, you know, I've done a million of those, right? So, so the, the thing that's cool about this is we can almost do the entire breach without ever touching disk. So for example, we will use an evil proxy, right? To and we kind of have our own proprietary code, but there's some ones out there like like evil jinx or modeliska. So we'll we'll send a phishing email in to like an SRE and or like a an engineer. And sometimes you know companies will have like approval processes. So if you commit code, somebody else has to like approve that code before it gets pushed to prod, right? So we'll send a phishing email in that looks like you need to click this link to approve the code as an engineer. And then the engineer will click it and then there'll be some type of SSO system that will be in play, right? 
and they'll authenticate to the SSO system, but they're going through our evil proxy. And when they go through our evil proxy, we will steal their SSO token or their or their cookies in their browser, and we will replay those um, to gain access to their cloud environments or whatever SaaS services are, are really available. Examples of this, it, like crazy cool things we've been able to do is uh, someone had their Citrix environment hooked up to the same SSO that this engineer was using. So we used those stolen cookies to off to Citrix. Citrix gives a full desktop. We dropped it at our implant on the desktop, and then we were able to pivot into their trusted land from there. So other, but a lot of times you don't even need to do that, right? Like if the SSO token can off to the AWS console or the Azure console or GCP console, then we're, now we're just logged in as that user in that same web browser experience. So, you know, then we ju- there's a couple ways you can persist, right? These cookies have a TTL, uh, the SSO tokens have a TTL, they're going to expire, right? So, uh, you know, we'll, there's some really complex things you can do to persist in these environments. But, uh, you know, some easy things that, that we do is like modification of a resource in the environment. So, for example, let's say there's like an API gateway that hits a Lambda function, right? And if we can modify the code to the Lambda function, then we can, you know, basically re-enable our access via some malicious code in there. Another thing we can do is uh, they have this really convenient feature inside the cloud providers called your cloud shell. So once you log into your AWS or Azure or GCP environment, you can click the cloud shell button and that will open up like a terminal. And in the browser, you can run your commands. Well, that's just a standard Linux environment that persists changes. So we'll go and modify like the bash RC or some other file in there. So every time you click that button, we get another interactive access uh, into the environment. It generally, those are like highly privileged, like whatever the user can do, we can do from that terminal. So, you know, really is a paradigm shift because think about it from this perspective, you have a new company and what's the first thing you know, you do, you're like, I go buy shiny EDR and I throw it on all my workstations, right? But we just sent a phishing email in, you clicked a link, that link went through an evil proxy, we stole the token, we used that token to off to your cloud environment. We never touch disk. EDR never gets to see that, do they? There's nothing for the EDR to see. I mean, they might see an event where you clicked a link, but you know, you would get that same data from some any proxy, right? Uh, so as long as we have a high reputation, you know, it, we're good. And, you know, ironically enough, <laughs> we use, sometimes we use like the cloud providers to re- do those redirections. So, so they're, they're, those domains are usually pretty trusted in these scenarios. It really flips, flips this whole thing on the head as, okay, you know, I've really, I got to figure out where the crown jewels are for my organization. I got to build defense in depth around those, right? And, you know, f- few organizations are doing that well today. But over time, everyone's getting a little better, right? So, Yeah, it would seem that there's probably some standard defenses that a mature organization is going to put in place. But what I hear you saying is that regardless of how you mix and match your defense, you're going to find a way to to score some points against these guys almost everywhere. Now, we, we'd mentioned, of course, the human element here with the fish, somebody actually authorizing something that if, had they known what it was, they wouldn't. If you could not do a fish, if you, there were no human in the loop, can you just do a pure technical 
uh, attack going in other than either finding unpatched systems, or maybe that's the way you look for it, or O-days or things you've discovered, which, of course, is really tough to defend against. Uh, what, what's an organization's best practice? I'm kind of asking to, to kind of give you a target playbook so that if you're effective as a purple team, as you know, as a red team, you sit down afterwards, you tell the blue guys, okay, here's how we pawned you. And you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, but oh, by the way, this, this, and this fixes it. Are there anything in general that you see as low-hanging fruit that CISOs and other listeners could say, yeah, wow, I'm going to be able to improve myself against the real attackers. Obviously, I kind of have a mixed background here coming from defensive and offensive, right? Where offensive being my passion. But I've seen a lot of value in organizations which take the MITRE attack framework, right? And they take the TTPs that are in it, the techniques that are in it, and then they start matching up the techniques against their ability to detect, defend, or prevent those techniques. So, and in a way that I've seen this done in the past is, you know, organizations will actually take each square and they'll mark them as like red, yellow, or green, depending on their ability to detect or prevent that specific technique. And really, I mean, you got to think about this, man. This is a war almost of attrition. It's a war of defense in depth, right? And especially if you're trying to defend against the ransomware scenario, you're trying to outrun the bear. You don't want to be the slowest organization there, right? Because they'll, you know, if they're not that angry at you, they're just looking for money, they'll, they'll move on to easier targets, right? So that, that, in my opinion, can really help organizations map out building a strategic defense in depth type thing. And, and I really believe, you know, you see this with a lot of internal red teams, a lot of internal red teams. They still do some red teaming, but they do a lot of purple teaming these days, right? And a lot of that is around validating that whatever the SOC or security engineers are saying they can do, that they actually are, are able to meet those benchmarks. I mean, almost every organization that we go in, you know, they say, we're definitely going to catch this one technique, right? Or these techniques. And, and when we test it, you know, the reality is usually starkly different. I mean... So some of the stuff that they thought they were going to detect, they did detect, but some of the stuff they did not. And, you know, I, I get it, man. Defense is hard, right? From, from a, especially the more diverse your landscape gets as a defender, the, the harder it gets, right? It's just hard to ensure that you have like consistent policies applied, consistent configurations applied. I mean, every, you know, incident I've ever worked in my life, I've gone to try to get a log source for something and it's not been available. Right. So it's not, it's not like as easy as like all the red teamers try to make it out to be right. So it, it, it really, in my opinion, the, the defense is, is extremely difficult, but yeah, I, my, my general advice to organizations is you, you want to get the MITRE attack framework, or you want to get the equivalent. If you're looking at the cloud providers, and you want to start making sure that you have solid detections and you have a way to validate that your detections continue to work, work, you know, at least quarterly validation that you're going to be able to detect those techniques and, and get ahead of the problem. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of my recommendation in that shell. Right. So that sounds pretty good. So we'll take the MITRE framework and we'll go ahead and potentially color code each of the little boxes based upon the cybersecurity framework and identify, protect, detect in these particular areas. And I would think there's also a role for threat intelligence to go ahead and then map the TTPs from your most likely expected attackers. If you're thinking you're going to be a ransomware victim and you say, okay, these are known groups, or if you're a defense contractor, you're probably going to be facing different known groups. 
And from there, you bulk up your defenses where you're going to probably see everybody coming at you. For example, to use an analogy, if I knew that there was a bunch of burglars in my neighborhood and they all come in through the bathroom window, then I got to concentrate my defenses on the bathroom window. Yes, they can come other places, but they always try the bathroom window. And so from that perspective, the threat intel would become very valuable in helping me do that. And as you'd said, being a defender is a little bit more difficult. I remember the when you used to think about, hey, do I want to be a red teamer or a blue teamer? And people sometimes are thinking about it, said, well, if you're a defender, you got to block all of the attack vectors. If you're the attacker, you only need to find one. And for a while, we thought that that was pretty much an unfair game and unwinnable. But then Lockheed Martin came out with their cyber kill chain, which they trademarked, so I got to mention their name in it, which is fine, where they actually say you've got to go through all these different steps. And if you can tackle the guy on the one-yard line, they don't score. And so as a result, for you as a professional red teamer, having a blue team background, do you still see that type of mindset in effect of where someone says, hey, I might miss you in the early stages and I might even miss you later in the detect. But as you're getting ready to exfil, if at the last minute they could pull the plug on that uh, Cat6 cable and strand all the data inside the network, technically, you know, they got you. But do you actually see that happening? Or for the most part, you're in and out. And nobody really knows this is the long after you're gone. The riskiest part of the offensive operations, in my opinion, is initial access and code execution, right? By far, that's the point where you're going to get caught, in my opinion. Once you get code running on a box, and if it doesn't get detected in the first day or whatever, you're, you're usually pretty solid, right? It's difficult on both sides, just, just to be frank, right? Like, I, the key is really, though, on both sides to come up with multiple strategies. On the defensive side, if you're following the MITRE ATT&CK framework and you're, you're coming up with multiple layers, right, and you're, you're getting detections at multiple layers or prevention controls at multiple layers, that, that's a much harder target, right, than somebody you know, who just is like, hey, we got this proxy, next-gen proxy, your firewall is going to protect us, right? But, you know, on the flip side, as an, as an attacker, if I like, no, I always get caught on initial access and code execution, you know, I can, especially if like I'm a ransomware group and I have the ability to recruit some talent or resources to recruit talent. I mean, I could acquire some capabilities like AKA O-Days, right? To defeat detections at that layer, right? So you don't want to have all your eggs on the bat in the same basket either way. But the one thing that, was always kind of happening, but EDRs have made ubiquitous, I guess is the way I'd put it, is telemetry, right? Now, I mean, this, this was not the case 20 years ago, but today, I mean, you do anything on an endpoint and it's got an EDR, somebody's sucking up telemetry about that. Microsoft's sucking up telemetry about it off of the new modern Windows OSs. You know, you've got all the network gear that's sucking up telemetry and they're sending that to a cloud provider, right? Which you know, shifts, shifts the game a bit, right? In the sense that if you actually have a ransomware group out there and they're trying to span operations against multiple organizations, right? And let's say they get caught at one organization, somebody's probably gonna have telemetry about the other organizations they also breached. There's different types of threat intel in my opinion, but that's where, you know, sharing of indicators and those going to law enforcement and then coming back down to the other organizations are or private entities that focus on incident response. I mean, that's that's where you get some synergies there on the on the defensive side. 
but on the flip side, I think you'll see this counterweight, right? If ransomware groups are making money and they realize I got to change TTPs on a per organization basis, right? Then they're also, so, you know, it's kind of like a chicken or an egg or, or kind of like a, you know, an escalating thing. Right. But I think that's good, right? You're increasing the costs on the attackers and the defenders are able to pick up some wins. So. And that was really the battle 30 years ago in the antivirus role when they came up with polymorphic is say, hey, instead of just having a fixed signature, which is really easy, and then all the antivirus vendors would, would trade their signatures. All, and I remember in the early days, McAfee would say, we blocked 20,000, 22,000. And all of a sudden, when they polymorphic, it's like 18 zillion. It's like, how'd you go from 20,000 to 18 zillion? Well, you know, there's you know two to the 256 power com- permutation. So what we see then is the challenge for the red teamer seems to be to come up with a novel way to get code execution. That the traditional approach where if you have a client who has an EDR and it's actually being monitored by somebody who's paying attention, that the, the straightforward approach going in the front door is probably going to trigger some alert somewhere. Or as I said, threat intelligence being able to share from them to say, hey, our client over here got popped. You're doing the same stuff. You're going to get popped if you don't change it. Let's do this. So you're right. It complicates things for the red teamer. But if you're going after the cloud, it still seems to me that a great pivot would be to go ahead and grab some trusted machine that's usually talking to the cloud. So one of the things we tell people is never administer your network on a client machines. Don't have your email account associated with your admin account, things such as that. And you want to go ahead and do the privilege. Is that same thing? Should that extend to the cloud? Should you have a machine, a physical machine, a trusted box that you don't do anything other than just administer the cloud with? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't think anybody has really put this together yet. At least I haven't really seen it documented well because of the cutting or bleeding edge nature of the cloud. But you see Microsoft documentation on how to manage an active directory, right? Where you have like a red forest and then you have dedicated workstations for managing the forest, right? Or the active directory domains. And you don't do any, they say in the recommendations, don't check your email from this. Don't do that from this, all that stuff. I, I, I think that's eventually where we're going to go for the, for the cloud. Like if you're going to log into your cloud provider and you're going to log in with the administrative privileges or the root account, I think you need to be on an endpoint that does not do anything but administrate it personally. But I mean, that, that is not common, right? Like I actually don't know any organization. I know organizations that do that through Reactor Directory, but I, I, they won't do the same thing for their cloud today. But I think that's that's where we're going to get to. And, you know, that would obviously kill the phishing angle that we use to get in and things like that. You know, there's, it's not documented in the best practices, as far as I can tell. To, to their credit, AWS, Azure, GCP, they do have some good documentation on ways to uh, secure the environments. They do recommend, you know, like not using the same root email account you would use for your personal use, things like that. But, you know, I, I really think, you know, you're going to need to see like some more separation there. And I think you're onto something. Again, we're, we're kind of helping out your targets in a way, but for the most part, a lot of our audience are on the defense side. And we understand that the value that a really knowledgeable red teamer provides to the ecosystem is to give that aha moment to an organization to say, look, you thought you were doing well, but you weren't. You missed this. And if we catch it, it's okay. And really what you're paying for with a red team isn't necessarily 
skill or talent or even their toolbox. At least this is my philosophy. What you're paying for is the rules of engagement. Because if somebody wants a really effective pen test, hey, just turn it over to Russian or Chinese intelligence groups, and they'll, they'll do the pen test for free. But their rules of engagement are they steal what they can find and they share with their buddies. And your rules of engagement are you show the client how to protect what they have and you hand it back. And that's where I think when you look at that, there becomes a really, really important understanding for organization like Stage 2 to say, yeah, we're more than just a bunch of really smart people. We're a bunch of smart ethical people. And and your background, having had government background, I think goes a long way toward reinforcing that. Do you find that that is, if you will, a selling point in terms of convincing organizations that there's a value in red team services? Yeah, absolutely. And, and our red team uh, members of it come from typically two backgrounds, right? They either come from like the intelligence community type background where they have a really good understanding of OPSEC and deep penetrating deep into networks, like, you know, getting to segments of networks that aren't supposed to talk to the internet, all that stuff, or vulnerability research or things like that. And then the, the, other, the other side of the house is we actually employ quite a few former software engineers, right? And these are guys who really understand the applications, they understand the minds of the software engineers, but they, they really have the passion for the offensive side. And, and you know, we've been able to leverage this combination of skill set to do some pre- pretty amazing things, right? So like, for example, if, if we can get access to a engineer inside like a tech organization or a company developing software, you know, we've been quite successful in, in you know, pushing commits that have got us code execution in the middle of the CICD pipelines. And the CICD pipelines, a lot of those also exist in a cloud environment. So then we'll still we'll steal the tokens or whatever permissions those build environments have from the cloud environments and use that as a pivot point into the cloud. I think what organizations really need to consider is, is the whole concept of maturity, right? Like you, you can't do everything, right? So where am I today? You know, and how am I going to get better tomorrow? Right. And how do I really get more value than just this like point in time pen test engagement? Because if you have people, engineers, and they're building new software every day, they're probably creating more resources in the cloud, more servers, uh, more instances. You, you need to get coverage of that. We see these glamorous breaches of like, you know, China or Russia or whoever drops Ode. But then we also see a lot of breaches where it's just like random SRE put database on internet and didn't put a password on it or went into AWS and spun up an Elasticsearch cluster and there's no authentication, right? And, and those are things that, frankly, you know, somewhat embarrassing. A lot of those cart solutions that are out there are, are really going to help organizations prevent those th- those type of attacks. And then you can really reallocate your resources for the yearly engagement on the things you actually care about. Like, hey, I'm really worried about if someone in finance's laptop gets compromised, what's going to happen? Or if an engineer's laptop gets compromised, what's going to happen, right? And then you can start, you know, layering your defenses as an organization. So we're really talking about with with CAR, the continuous automated red teaming and things such as that is almost sort of like a a simian army on the red team where you've got somebody always poking around at you that you you never get a break from saying, hey, there's somebody doing stuff, which in a way 
is designed to cause repeatable good habits. If I know that if I do something dumb, even for five minutes, I'm going to get popped. I, I just can't take that shortcut. What it does, I think, on the side of the client and then also their blue teamers is it instills a discipline, a discipline that says, don't do shortcuts. It's like, oh, I'm just going to the corner store. I don't need a seatbelt. Well, anybody who is look at risk factors, you know, the cost to put on a seatbelt is virtually nothing. And yet the avoidance of risk is fantastic. If you go ahead and look at what the consequences are. And so a lot of times they talk about security as having a return on seatbelt investment, an ROSI, where you don't actually justify it from a financial perspective to say I'm making money on my security. But what you do justify it on is the reduction of risk and you're avoiding more of the catastrophic type of a breach. And so this has been, I don't know, fascinating insight in terms of things. Any other thoughts that you have that you'd like to share as we're getting kind of close to the end of our show here? One thing that I see in every organization is they have a giant backlog of security work, right? And they, they are trying to prioritize it the best they can, right? But the, the, one of the value adds of offensively looking at this is you know the things that actually need to get fixed or you can better prioritize the backlog, right? So like we'll have clients ask, do I actually need to apply these kernel updates, right? Is, this, is there any vulnerabilities which are actually exploitable, right? And, and you know, typically they, you know, we'll look into it and give them a recommendation on, on it. But you, you could spend a lot of time doing hygiene type activities, which is good. I'm not trying to say that's bad, but in, in a world with an infinite backlog, you, you've got to have some, de, some determining factor on which things you're going to fix first and which are going to have the biggest effect on reducing your overall risk. And, and that's really what the offensive perspective is providing. It's helping you do your job better. Right. And, and I know everyone's probably heard this before, but you know, as a kind of gist, you know, red is really there to make blue stronger, right? It's one and the same. And I, I'm a strong believer in, in purple teaming, right. As a, as a whole, I, I think that when red teaming is done correctly, that it and purple teaming are probably very much the same thing. And, and I concur with you because that's the real value there in the feedback. So for anybody who aspires to a career as a legit red teamer, it's not a game of gotcha and going yanya at the defenders. It's more of a matter of almost like being a mentor and a trainer. And we're going to put them through their paces, and then we're going to say, this is how you can get better. And eventually you want to get to the point where their defenses are significantly stronger when you first, than when you first met them. And at that point, that's the real victory, in my opinion, as a red teamer, is that you have helped your client organization really improve their defenses, not that you've racked up a, a series of kind of notional wins on a set of targets, which you don't really represent the attacker as well. So this has been a really interesting time. And so I thank you very much for being on the show. This is Bryce Koontz. He's with Stage 2. And he, if you want more information on this, we'll put some links in our show notes so you can understand a little bit more. Will you be speaking to Black Hat or will you be at Black Hat this year, potentially? Yeah, we'll be teaching that training course at Black Hat. So, and we'll be at the, we'll be at Black Hat and DefCon. Most of the senior guys will. Excellent. So maybe folks can look for you there. This is G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. Thank you for tuning in. As always, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Follow us on LinkedIn. And until next time, stay safe.